Hello, everybody, and welcome to Staying Fit ODAT. My name is Migs, and I'm your host. ODAT is an acronym for one day at a time that I picked up in early sobriety and something that's stuck with me every day since. All right. Welcome to the next episode of Staying Fit ODAT, one day at a time. Thank you so much for being with us today, Charlie. How are we doing? Man, today is a good day. That's all I can say. Partly because I'm here and, you know, the sun's shining. Yeah, brother. I love it. Uh, I was, I'm really, really excited about this episode today. Um, I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity after hearing your story. Um, just to give our listeners a little feedback as well and a little uh, insight to this interview today. So uh, I actually heard your story. For, I knew your name in the running world. Um, just being a runner, hearing about ultras and whatnot. I always heard the name Charlie Angle, Charlie Angle. But I always heard the epic shit that you were doing out there on the on the trails and what you accomplished as a runner. Um, and then while listening to one of my favorite podcasts uh, recently, 10 Junk Miles, um, I heard you on a long run episode in which uh, Scott got to spend two hours just talking to you. And man, again, I'm getting chills just telling, uh, just rethinking, hearing that story. Um, I was on my way home from New Jersey. Actually, I heard your I heard your story in two different parts. Um, I heard it on my way out and back from New Jersey, only about 35 minutes from where I live, um, grabbing packet pickup. And then the next day out and back as well um, after the race in which I actually set a PR that day. I was extremely motivated by a lot of shit I heard from you. Um, and it was just unbelievable. Um, and so there's so much stuff we're going to talk about here and full disclosure, because I don't really do a lot of editing. So I'm just going to let our listeners know from the beginning, um, on the day of this recording today is actually my fourth wedding anniversary. I'm running about 20 minutes behind schedule right now. Um, tomorrow's my son's birthday. So there's been a lot of craziness going on. Um, so this is actually going to be another cool thing that this is going to be the first, uh, episode that I'm actually going to be doing in two parts, which we just established between you and I, not even five minutes ago. So there's a lot of fun things happening. Um, but you know, that's, that's part of recovery. That's part of running. You know, when shit happens, you just fucking roll with it and you keep going. Um, so with that being said, I think I had enough of a little intro to that. I see this big smile on your face and, uh, you already seem like the kind of guy that this interview is going to be so awesome, which is why we couldn't just cut this to 40 minutes. Um, this is why it's gotta be two parts and this is going to be a blast. Uh, so why don't you go ahead and tell our listeners who you are, where you're from, what you do for a living, you know, all that stuff that doesn't involve you know, all of the drinking and drugging and stuff we're going to get into. Yeah, man. Wow. That was just, uh, I'm smiling because of your energy, man. It's, uh, it's cool. I, I appreciate that. And uh, you're welcome for that PR. I appreciate you acknowledging the fact that, you know, you wouldn't have gotten the PR if it weren't for me. I'm, I'm kidding. um yeah man i so i live in uh, durham north carolina so we're on the same coast and uh you know i always make jokes that you know the california and and uh arizona they're all full of ultra runners so i have to keep representing here on the east coast because uh you know there's not as many of us here and that's probably not true actually but um my you know really one of my missions in life I say this both jokingly and for real is, you know, to never have what I'd call a real job. Um, you know, I want to do as long as I can afford to in my life. Uh, I want to do what makes me what I'm passionate about, what makes me happy. Not everything I do makes me happy, but I'd rather have the freedom to make choices kind of on a daily basis 
uh, for me, it works. And actually, the, the truth of the matter is I make a terrible employee. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I don't even like working for myself. So it's, uh, you know, it's just one of those things that I found a rhythm with writing. Uh, you know, I've had the good fortune of writing quite a bit, some a lot of articles, and of course, a book a few years ago. And um, I've made some films and I still do some, I still do a manual labor job once in a while. It's part of my story you heard, uh, I think you've heard before, which is I spent many decades actually chasing hailstorms around the world. So I contract with auto dealers and insurance groups and it's not sexy, it's not fun, but it's good money. And it's like, when I go do a job, if it lasts a week or a month, when I'm done with it, I'm done. And like, I, I go back home and I'm free to just be home and be with my wife and run and live my life. And I, I much prefer that kind of, uh, of an arrangement. And I think, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm originally from North Carolina. I went to the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Go, go Tar Blue Hills. Devils. Sorry. Go Tar Heels. Hey, watch it now. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh uh, you know, I, I have part of my story is, of course, I had a very um, uh, unimpressive three years in college before drugs and alcohol finally won that battle. And, you know, and I went from there all the way out to Seattle, Washington. And I spent the next 10 years of my life basically just doing a uh, doing the shuffle as many addicts do. I move somewhere. I do great for six months. I decide, hey, I could probably drink again. And I start drinking again and I call the dealer and everything unwinds. And that's it. Of course, it's the city's problem. It's their fault. So if I just move to another city, everything will be good again. So then I move and I do it all over again. And I did that like eight times. And, you know, like a lot of us addicts, I was always a top salesperson. I was always like, you know, I mean, the energy that we bring to something, if you think about how much energy we used to put into uh, drinking, into acquiring drugs and doing drugs, I'm like my whole life, I knew how to plan my days around what I wanted to get. And so when I took that energy and put it towards business, I actually did pretty well. Um, the problem is I just couldn't keep my act together during those 10 years and, you know, and eventually all of that unraveled. So I've, I've answered more than you asked me to start with. Hey, it's it's all good. I'm again. I'm loving the energy right back. I I can see. And and again, this is just one more reason why this interview can never happen in 40 minutes between you and I. Um, <laughs> I I think we're. I think this is going to just be too much fun. I think we both just um in, enjoy you know talking and just sharing the positivity too much that this can never happen. Um, a few things that I want to touch on that you covered. Um, first. Uh, going in no particular order. Um, I don't know if you're a college basketball fan, um, but I'm a huge Duke Blue Devils fan. Um, actually fell in love at my age. So I I'll tell you a really quick story. Um, I was I was in about seventh grade when I started watching college basketball. And I remember uh, my two favorite players in college basketball that year were Mike Bibby and Jason Williams. And weirdly enough, they ended up in the national championship against each other. And I was at an age where you can call it bandwagon, call it whatever. I was just getting into it. And I remember actually saying, whichever one of these guys pulls off the national championship here, this is just the team I'm going to root for. 
Um, so uh, luckily, Jason Williams outperformed. Um, otherwise, that would have been like the only national championship I ever got the root for Arizona in. Um, but I mean, Duke has only given like two since then. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, we never even got to see Jason Williams in the NBA because of that motorcycle accident. Um, but he him and Shane Battier and Carlos Boozer, they were the guys that made me fall in love with college ball. Um, and the other thing I wanted to talk about on a more serious note and mention what you said, um, you know, you wanted to find a job where, you know, you're not necessarily working. And it reminds me of something that my mom said uh, to me growing up. And that's if you find a job that you love, then you're never working a day in your life. And that's something that kind of embedded in my head. And, you know, I that's kind of, you know, I love working in the restaurant industry, something that was hard when I sobered up because I'm around booze, I'm serving it and this and that. And alcohol was my main, main issue. So that was tough for me. But, you know, I truly enjoy working in the restaurant industry. I love taking care of people. I love to talk. Um, and, you know, for no, it's no secret that that also does well for me financially as well, because it just translates into great tips because I can just be myself and it just works out. Um, so it's always something that's really, really fortunate for me. Um, and I, and again, I'm so stoked to be into this story. Are you standing up for this whole time? Dude, I never sit down. I, don't oh, like I love it. Down. I love it. Uh, one of our, um, one of my really good friends too, who actually used to live up here in Pennsylvania actually lives down in North Carolina right now. Um, my best friend who I call my brother, um, who is actually away. He's actually currently incarcerated. Um, mm -hmm. and he's actually going to be the godfather of my child. As soon as he gets out, we're going to get my son baptized and he's going to be the godfather. He's actually in North Carolina as well. So I'm actually going to be working my way down there soon to visit both of them, hopefully. Um, the first guy I mentioned is actually part of our Facebook group and he's going to be running, um, a really big trail race. So, you know, there's, there's, there might be a chance for me to hopefully get to even see you in person. When I work my way down there, we might have to try and set something up. Um, okay. I gotta, I gotta stop you one second. Yeah, though, go ahead. There's something really important we got to establish. So, for sure. so, uh, just so you understand, my grandfather was the head track coach and cross country coach at the university of North Carolina, Chapel Hill for about 40 years. My father played for Dean Smith for his first couple of years of coaching. And when I was in college, I actually played JV basketball at Carolina for Roy Williams. Roy was my coach because he was the JV coach when I was in college in the early 80s, long before you were born. And, uh, you know, so I got two years on the court of playing with Michael Jordan and James Worthy and Sam Perkins and some of these guys. So I'm going to I'm going to forgive you for that big that big long speech you gave about Duke, I'm going to forgive you because Holy you're, too, shit. you're too young to know the difference. But I'll, when you come down here, I'll take you to a real campus over here. Oh. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to fight that back a little bit and just say um, that, that just like you, cause I know you look a lot younger than you are. Um, which is why I was also going to say it's, it's hard to believe that a guy as sexy as you could be working non-sexy jobs. Thank um, you. I but, that. but I do have a baby face. So when you say the early 80s, long before I was born, that's only a couple years before I was born. I was born in 87. All right. And so I am I am Fair old enough. enough. I am old enough to remember, um, you know, those guys playing. And, and again, even though I'm I'm Im embedded and I'm, I'm super loyal to Duke and um, I'm going to show you this, I'm going to try not to strip for you. But if you can see that. I yeah. have a Blue Devils tattoo on my leg. I see it. Yeah. Um, but uh, realistically, though, as a diehard sports fan and just a respecter of the game, um, I, you know, I have nothing bad I could ever say about um, about uh, 
Coach Dean Smith and Roy Williams, you know, they're extreme uh, legends of the game. And I'm very, very aware. I'm not the idiot that says, oh, they suck just because I root for the team a few oh, miles no, it's down the, the greatest, road. It's the greatest rivalry in college basketball, maybe in all of college sports. And it's, it's always a lot of fun. And, you know, my wife is actually a more serious fan than me. So if she's, she might be hearing me downstairs right now. So she's going to ask me what I'm talking about later, but I have to be, I have to be careful with her because she'll get, she'll get, uh, you know, she'll come up here in a minute and tell you all about, you know, Carolina. I love it. We might have to book a third session just to get into that. Now, before we spend the entire time that I have with yeah. you today, just talking about college ball, which I could definitely do. And it seems like you could as well. Um, why don't we get into, you know, I like to give our listeners the full gamut of, of, of our, of the interviewee, our special guest, whatever we want to call this today. I like to let them into your life from beginning to end. Um, so why don't you go ahead and start and, you know, tell our listeners, you know, about your childhood growing up, what it was like um, growing up in North Carolina, you know, before your first experience, pretty much everything uh, wrapping up before your first experience with a drink or a drug. Yeah, man. So, I mean, so my parents were 19 when I was born, so they were young and they were in college at UNC actually. And my mom was, uh, they actually got divorced when I was very young, when I was only a year old. So I lived primarily with my mother and my stepdad here in Durham, North Carolina, out in the country, like out in the sticks. It's only about a mile from where I am right now, but like you don't even recognize it now because it's all built up. But back then, like it was out in the middle of nowhere. And my mom was in the theater department at the university getting another master's degree. I mean, she was a, a lifelong, you know, person in education and we had parties all the time. So I was an only child and at my, my house was the, you know, party house. There were plays and there were things like that. And so the cast and the crew and people were at our house constantly. It, it actually blows my mind because I have to think about, I have to remember the fact that my parents at that time, I remember it so well. I'm seven years old, but like my parents are only 26 years old, <laughs> right? So they're like, they're kids. My, my kids are older than they were, you know, at that point. And, uh, you know, and that's where I was exposed to a lot and not in a bad way. I was, I was loved very much by my mother. She was a free spirit. She passed a few years ago. And uh, I, I like to say that I was lovingly neglected you know, I kind of did my own thing. I raised myself to a certain degree. And a lot of times that meant there wasn't a lot of, you know, food in the house or things to drink and just like normal stuff. And, uh, and again, part of it's just because she was young and, and probably a little irresponsible. But um, I remember very distinctly being nine years old and it's a night where there's a big party and I actually look outside and I see my mom and a bunch of people dancing <laughs> in the front yard and the speakers in the window. And it's one of those nights and I open the fridge and there's nothing in there but powdered milk and like, which is awful. And, you know, and I, uh, I walked around the party and I actually picked up a beer bottle that night and I drank half a beer and then I picked up another one. And I drank another half. And I mean, I'm only nine. That was, that was all, but I really, I write about this in my book. I distinctly remember, as I like to say, that like alcohol planted a flag in my brain on that night and claimed it, you know, for itself. And I, I knew kind of from then on 
that alcohol was going to be part of my life. And, you know, and I basically, I took the route of overachieving in high school. Okay. I moved in with my father, a whole different scenario, much more conservative. Yeah. I played six sports. I was a captain of teams and I made good grades and I dated cheerleaders and I uh, was student body president in a really big high school. And, you know, and I, I sort of went that route, like this is a better way to get acknowledgement. And I went to Carolina for college and I thought I was special. And I thought I was gonna be treated specially just like I had been in high school. And I get there and I find out pretty quickly that I'm really average <laughs> and maybe, <laughs> maybe even below average. And like there's 4,000 other freshmen there who all have the same resume and everything else. And I, I what I learned very quickly was that I was uh, a really amazing all-American first team drinker. And I could just simply drink more than anybody else. And that sort of became part of my identity. You know, I was that guy. And for a while, of course, and I'm sure you can relate, for a little while, it was fun. And I was fun. And it's it worked for that brief period of time. And the difference is my classmates and my friends and all these guys, you know, we would drink until two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning and they'd go to bed. And like they'd get up the next morning hung over and they'd go to class. I just kept drinking. And of course the eighties was all about cocaine. And so, you know, I developed a really serious Coke habit and that's, you know, that led me eventually, despite my association with the basketball team and other good things, I just couldn't maintain. The last semester I was in college, I never attended a single class. I just simply stayed, you know, in my room getting high and drinking and, and eventually, you know, that was the end of my college career. And, you know, two weeks later, I'm working at a, I'm working as an assistant manager at a Wendy's in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> and, you know, and I mean, I've always worked hard. I had a job from the time I was 14 years old. And, uh, you know, and I, I just basically spent, as I already said, I spent those, the next 10 years from when I left school at 19, I spent the next 10 years basically just moving around the country. I would always be the top salesman. I was a top Toyota salesman in the country for a couple of years. I sold over 600 cars a year and I was living, I was living in Monterey, California and I was killing it, but I was also, I was drinking and snorting every dime that I made. I got married, I bought a house, I bought a car because my view was if I could show you how good I am, like if I've got all these things and I'm achieving here that I can't possibly have a problem with drugs and alcohol, right? Because addicts don't buy houses. And of course that's not true. And, you know, it finally just all came crashing down when my, you've, you got a birthday for your son coming up. Well, uh, the birth of my first son was when I was 29 years old. And, you know, I thought he was going to save me. Right. Because I tried to quit. I'd been to rehab. I'd gone to meetings. I'd seen I'd gone to church. I've seen a shaman like, dude, I would have gone to a witch doctor if I could have found one. Like if I could have found some way to stop, I would have stopped. And I thought the birth of my son finally was like that was going to be the thing that was going to make me stop because I knew I loved this little boy and I knew I felt love from him that I had never felt before. 
And I, because as an addict, I just thought I was broken and I thought I didn't deserve that kind of love. And a couple months after he was born, you know, there I am in the hood again, six days of smoking crack and drinking. And, you know, there's bullet holes in my car from somebody shooting at me and the police are digging through my car and uh, a cop pulls out a crack pipe and he's looking at me. And I like any like person with a brain would have been thinking, I'm in some serious trouble. Like I'm probably going to jail and like whatever. All I could think was like, so that's where that was. Like I looked for that pipe for two days and couldn't find it. <laughs> you know, and, and it's like, you know, that was sick thinking. I was, you know, I was sick. But here's the point of all of that. I realized in that moment, dude, that nobody was coming to save me. Like my son couldn't save me. That wasn't his job. You know, nobody could save me until I was ready to change my own life. And then I would have lots of support. But I had always been looking for my boss, my wife, my son, my whatever it was, all of that to like make me change. And I realized in that moment that nobody was coming to save me until I was ready to save myself. Absolutely. And that's that's just unbelievable. That's, you know, I remember hearing that part as well. Um, you know, it's one of those things when you hear someone's story and you hear certain parts, you can almost remember exactly where you were um, and exactly, you know, literally you can picture it in your head. And it's crazy because when I get to that part of your story, when I'm listening to it on the 10 Junk Miles podcast, um, I actually remember I'm driving through a neighborhood in which um, I live in a pretty, a pretty decent neighborhood, but not far away is kind of like one of our cities like hood so to speak yeah um and i actually remember i'm actually driving through this park because depending on which way you come in you got to kind of drive past it a little bit to get to my house and i remember i'm actually driving past that part when you're talking about you know bullet holes in your car and this and that and i'm just i'm looking left i'm looking right and i'm just thinking shit a few years ago like i never got into crack or anything but i know a few years ago you know, I was drinking my ass off and, you know, I could have been in any one of these situations just trying to do something stupid, trying to get some money to, to head out to the liquor store or to the corner bar to grab like the cheapest six pack I could get. And, you know, being at my lowest of lows and, you know, I, I was never shot at and, you know, my car never ended up with bullet holes in it. Um, but, you know, it, you're. At, at the end of the day, we're only, you know, a couple decisions away, maybe, maybe, uh, a, you know, one, one left turn instead of a right turn, or, you know, maybe, maybe d depending on when you find that recovery, you know, it, it, it could have easily happened, you know, a week later, a month later. Um, one thing that I don't think, you know, is that actually, so I have, I have twins that are actually going to be 16 in October that I actually don't have a relationship with. Um, because I fucked that up and all I cared about was partying and doing my own thing and, you know, selfish me. And I had an alcoholic father as well. We actually relate in a lot of situations. My mom was 17 and my dad was 19 when they had me. Um, I grew up seeing it all. I tell a story about being in a car accident. Like I was literally sitting on the floor of the car on top of a case of beer, handing it to my dad and his friends while they're driving. They get into a car accident that night. Um, and, you know, my dad loved me to death and my dad is in recovery now, which is why I share his that that stupid shit he did so openly because he works a program now and he's in recovery. Um, and I love the term that you used, uh, lovingly, lovingly neglected. 
um, because it, it kind of makes me feel like I think that's kind of how my situation and my relationship with my father was like, I know he loved the shit out of me, but I know he also loved booze and drugs. Um, and my dad was the one that was into hard drugs as well, which is why, you know, I always said, I'm not going to drink and I'm not going to get into drugs. And, and my story explains how I ended up drinking anyway, but I never got into the harder drugs. Um, just cause alcohol kind of did everything I needed for me. Um, and, and some, so it's, it's crazy how much, you know, we relate and our stories are similar, although we might not necessarily be close in age or geographical distance. Um, it's crazy when these stories always relate at such similar time frames. And like I said, I just remember driving through that neighborhood and thinking like, fuck a couple different decisions a few years ago. And this could have easily been me. Um, and it's, it's just unbelievable. And it's still, again, it gives me chills just hearing that. Um, and it's, it's just so, I don't want to say cool, but it's like cool to get to hear that from your mouth this time talking to me and not just hearing it on another podcast. It's unbelievable. Um, and I think that's one of the moments like when I heard that, I was like, holy fuck, this story is crazy. Like, I need to get a hold of this guy. Like, I want I want to hear this story again. Like, that's it's just unbelievable. It's it's so crazy. Um, and we've I know all, we've all got the same story, dude. I mean, for sure. For sure. Absolutely. For sure. I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you. I got to tell you this one. Cause I know we're going to do a second session anyway, but I'm going to tell you a very brief story that I've never told. I've never told on the air before. Anyway, yeah. it is in my book, but so the first time I ever did crack, first time I ever smoked crack was uh, I've been doing Coke for a number of years and I was working on the road in Denver. So I was in Denver, Colorado, and I was there on a job and I chased a hailstorm to Denver and I was working my ass off. And I went out one night, you know, with my buddies who worked for me and, you know, we started drinking. And of course, inevitably, I was just going to have two beers and, you know, 20 beers later, I'm driving uh, around Denver and I stop in this bar and I asked the bartender, I said, hey, I'm new in town, like, it was some good places to go, whatever. And he tells me a couple of things. And then he goes, I'll never forget. Then he says, but be sure, hey, man, whatever you do, don't go down to Colfax. Because Colfax, that's where all the bad shit happens. And of course, I said, thank you. And I got in my car and I drove to Colfax. <laughs> where, you know, within 10 minutes, I've got this person from the street in my car. And I'm telling her I want, you know, Coke. And she's like, no problem. She, I give her a hundred bucks. She leaves. She comes back to the car 10 minutes later. And she hands me this little baggie with these rocks in it. I'm like, what is this? She's like, that's your dope. And I'm like, what is this? She's like, it's crack. I'm like, I don't do crack. Cause to me, that was like, that's like, where you draw the line at that point. Right. No, I'm not doing that. That's, that's I'm not a different. crackhead. I'm just a cokehead. Right. I'm too good for that. Right. And she's like, just try it. You know, and so I end up doing this first hit. And of course, immediately, you know, alarm bells go off in my head. And, and you know, and I spend the next I spend the next days doing this. And I'm going to cut to the end of the story. So three days later, my, it's snowing. My car has been stolen, stolen. I'm using air quotes for people who can't see. My car has <laughs> been stolen by the by the drug dealer, you know, the woman, because you know, as I always make the jokes, like drug dealers are so inconsiderate. And, <clears throat> you know, and so I can't, I'm, I'm in the middle of a snowstorm. I wake up in this dumpy motel. Somehow I've fallen asleep. 
all my shit's gone. My car is gone. Everything. I'm walking. I'm getting kicked out of the motel. I don't even have a jacket and it's snowing. I'm walking down the road. Literally, I look to my left and this is just the way the universe works. I look to my left and I see my, I see a car that looks like mine. It's a Toyota 4Runner. And I'm like, I sprint down there and there's smoke coming out of the back of it. Like, in other words, it's running, like the car is on. I, I look at it and I know that's my car. I jump in, I put it in reverse, I drive out and I'm like going, woo, I got my car. And then I hear this sound, it sounds like a cat or something in the back. And I turn around and there's a baby strapped into a car seat in the back seat of my car. Holy and I have shit. just now driven away from this house. And, you know, I, later I figured out, because this happens in that world a lot, where people will basically, like the person who took my car, she just like rented it to somebody else, yep. you know, to use for the day or whatever. I just happened to come upon my own car. I get in and drive away. And of course, even in my like crazy state, you know, I drive around the block right back to where I was and I'm pulling up though and I see a woman who she's out in the middle of the street and she's like waving her arms and crying and screaming and everything and I pulled up right next to her we we made eye contact we looked at each other for a second she opened the back door she unbuckled the car seat she took her kid out she closed the door again she walked away I drove away and that was the end of it like, like nothing ever happened because we both knew that we were both like severely the, fucked yeah. up in this situation, right? Nobody wanted any trouble. But I mean, that's just an example of the kind of crazy uh, stories that if you do the things that, that we did long enough, you know, things that you could never imagine for yourself, you know, start to happen. So anyway, that's that's a, That's unbelievable. And and before we kind of like take our intermission, so to speak, um, between this and pickup next time, um, one thing I'm going to jump into. So, I, you know, normally I ask I ask my guests, you know, um, I think a lot of times it's, you know, people who are really hard into alcohol or they're living a kind of I don't want to say normal, but they're not living the kind of life that you're telling a story of right now. Um, so a lot of times I have to ask them or, you know, I like to ask them, you know, at what point do you realize you have a problem. Does someone approach you? Does someone say this? Does someone do that? When does it get realized? But I mean, I think it's no secret right now that like you can't be doing that kind of shit without being in like full blown addiction. I mean, the problem is there. I mean, you're searching for your own car, driving away with other people's children, um, you know, and it's it's like it's it's absolutely insane. So it's it's obviously very clear um, that, that Charlie angle at this point is in full blown addiction. I mean, you're just doing anything and everything, whatever for, for your next fix. It is what it is. Um, at what point do you realize that, that shit, I have a problem and I need to start getting my life together. Yeah. So, you know, that story I told about, you know, the bullet holes in the car and I'm sitting there on the ground with the police searching my car. That was actually July 23rd, 1992. And my first son was two months old at that point. And that was, at least up to today, <laughs> coming up on 29 years ago, that was my last drink and drug. And, you know, some of it was the fact that I, uh, when I realized nobody else was coming to save me, you know, I went to an AA meeting that night. And I'd been to AA meetings before, but I never, 
you know, I kind of never meant it. You know what I mean? I went to get people off my back primarily. And I went to a meeting that night and I got up the next day and I went for a run and I had been a runner, you know, in, in high school. And this is a longer topic, but I mean, in college, even and through my 20s, I used running because I was a binger. Like I'd go on a three month, like just tear where every day I'm drinking and if I could afford drugs, I'm doing all that. And then I'm like, finally say, okay, I've enough, I quit, I can't do it. And I'd have a month or two where I'd be determined to work out and run and feel good and eat well and sleep and do all that. And then eventually I'd, the cycle would start all over again. But you know, this time I took it seriously. And for three straight years, man, Three years without missing a single day, I went to a meeting every single day and I ran every single day, I every day. I love it. Can you say and that? Can you say that one more time? We'll pretend that we were cutting out. Just say that one more time because I fucking love that right there. Say that know, one I, more time for the people in the back. Hey, listen, listeners, yeah. if you're driving, pull over. If, if, you're, if you have this on your podcast, turn the shit up a little bit. Put the headphones in a little bit tighter and I want you to hear because my man is coming up on 29 amazing, wonderful years. That's, I mean, this is only five years. I was five years old when he is having this epiphany. Holy shit. And uh, I, I also want to say, you know, this is all one day at a time and we always got to keep doing what we're doing. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, as of right now, after hearing this date, you are now the most tenured sobriety that we've had on this podcast. And I don't even think you're the, I, I, I'm not sure oldest person or not because i don't know exactly how old you are um which 58, is kind of, baby. 58 you might be close to it um but either way one i'm 100 sure and i know you're gonna know this name this is who you're beating for for most sobriety uh catra dirtiva corbett i was gonna she say probably 20, she, i believe she had 27 years when i did yeah. her interview a few months ago yeah. Um, so, and I mean, if you know her, you, you probably know that if that time matches up, you got about a year and a half on her, which, you know, that's the one race. I think she would even tell you, she never wants to beat you in. Cause I don't think anybody wants to pass anyone in sobriety. Um, well, I know Catra because Catra and I, 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 we did this thing together five years ago for mental health. We ran across the United States together. So it was my project and I invited Catra to come run. And so six recovering drug addicts ran from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. in order to bring attention to the need for greater mental health services. Another one was a very well-known guy in the ultra community named David Clark. And David passed away a couple this past year during COVID. He, tragic story, super just outgoing guy, ran bad water a bunch of times and like just an amazing guy. But Katra and I did this this thing together. And she is, um, you know, she's an amazing, honest, raw, as you know. Unbelievable. So <laughs> that's actually how, that's actually the first time I heard your name was. So I listened to her audio book. Um, and when I listened to her audio book, I reached out to her on Instagram. She responded. Um, we did the interview. She actually talks about this exact run that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and it's really cool. And that's when I get to hear your name again. Um, but then hearing, like I said, then I got to hear your story on the 10 junk miles. And that's why I was like, shit, I need this guy on here as well. Um, so before I hit, before I hit the pause button and before we let you go here for the day, um, I want you to repeat that part one more time. So for three years, you did what? For three straight years. Yeah. I went to a meeting every day 
and I ran every single day. And during those three years, I actually ran 30 marathons. So, and I always make the joke because obviously I had that whole addiction thing under control, right? And, and people would accuse, I had people accuse me. And this is, a, this is actually, since we're still talking recovery, I'm gonna take the last couple of minutes and I'm gonna say this because I think it's really important for the people listening. And maybe you can relate. When I finally quit drinking and drugging, I had friends, I had people that I'd known for years who'd watched me suffer and destroy myself come up to me and say, hey, hey, you don't need to stop. You know, you just need to slow down. You gotta get this under control. And it took me a while to understand that not everybody is in your corner when you stop because it's not that they didn't love me or care about me, but they were worried about themselves because we surround ourselves with people when we're drinking and drugging, we surround ourselves with people that condone our behavior. And so the last thing they wanna see is you get sober because then they're gonna have to take a look at their own lives. They're gonna have to, misery really loves company. And so if they can keep you sucked into what they're doing, they don't have to feel badly or make a change in their own life. And so during those three years where I was running every single day, dude, I ran that hard because I wanted to run the addict out of me. Like every single day I ran so hard, I thought I could kill that guy. And like I could take a knife and just cut that part of me out. And because that guy was trying to kill me. But it took those three years to figure this out. The addict's all the best parts of me. Like, that's what makes me good at stuff, right? I mean, all what I needed to do is not get rid of that guy. I needed to take that power that we have as addicts and point it towards things that I cared about, that I was passionate about. And then I could actually live the life that I was meant to live. And Those you know, that's, for that's the difference. And not everybody wants to see you succeed. And it's a, it's a reality. And we always have to like understand that nobody can save you but you. You can't listen to those voices and those people who are telling you, you know, you don't have to quit. You know, you just got to slow down. You know, there was no slowing down for me. I'd shown that. And, I, you know, I, I had to so just, true. I had to let those people go. I say that all the time. Actually, you know, it's, you know, I found, I found out who a lot of my friends were too. And I think a lot of people that, um, are dealing with addiction, they find that out too, because like you said, misery loves company. And I think a lot of times um, people who haven't necessarily identified themselves as an alcoholic, as an addict, I know I did this around certain people as well. Um, you surround yourself with people that you think are worse than you so that way you feel better about yourself. Um, and that's something that I was guilty of. And then I know that's something when people, when I cleaned up that certain people wanted to stop hanging out with me. And that's something that I identified um, you know, that's what they were doing because shit Migs is no longer the shit show. I can't hang out with this guy because then people are going to realize how bad I am. Um, and it, and it's crazy. Uh, but let's it. go. I, I know we have to let you go here for the day. So. All right. Thanks so much again for being back with us. Um, for all of our listeners, this is probably a unique episode. Um, you know, we had an intro and an outro and a welcome back. Um, this is a two-part interview with the legendary Charlie Angle. But, you know, if you've read this guy's book, if you've heard any of his other podcasts, you know that this guy, he doesn't do normal shit by any means anyway. So, you know, why would this interview just be normal? Um, and it, it takes more than 40 minutes to get this man's whole story in, in its true natural form. 
Um, so I refuse to just let that be an option. So definitely thank you again for the opportunity coming back with us. Um, this interview, the second part is only 23 hours after we picked off yesterday. Um, and we're right back at it. Uh, same smile, same energy, still not sitting down on his behalf. Uh, so we're going to get right back into it. It's a lot of fun. Um, yes. Yeah, so, so last we left off, we were talking about all the crazy stuff that, you know, that you, you've dealt with in recovery. Um, you know, everything from having cars shot at to, um, driving away in your own vehicle with a baby in the back seat. And that was a story you said you've never told on a podcast before. So definitely thank you for that unique story. Um, and you also, I want to highlight that, you know, you said you went to a meeting every single day for three years straight, uh, and you ran every day. So I was doing the math on that. That's almost 1100 meetings. That's almost 1100 runs, you know, We'll probably give you the benefit of doubt. You might have even hit more than one meeting in some of those days. So we'll probably say that as long as you, as long as you stayed consistent, plus that extra five that you did over 1100. Um, and I can't even imagine the miles. Um, I'm assuming you probably don't even have that number off the top of your head. I, you know what, man, I'm, I'm so glad to be back. I've never kept a running journal in my life. So it's uh, I am an instinctive trainer and runner and, I, I like to journal as far as writing goes, but I don't like to write those things down. So there were no days problem. where I ran twice too. I, the hardest part, of course, was actually trying to get in a short run on day on like the day after a marathon. Oh, I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. You know, but I was determined to at least get a couple of miles in. Now, let me let me ask you, um, and we'll probably end up going back and forth because we talked about a lot about your recovery and whatnot. Um, and actually, no, I'm just going to write this down and save this question for later, because um, what I really wanted to get into at this part of your story um, is, again, in that interview that I heard from you before, there was a lot of a lot of stuff that you went through in your life um, and you did you did some time in, in prison as well. And, you know, a lot of people who just heard, OK, we're going to hear a recovery story. And Charlie did some time in prison. I think 99 out of 100 viewers or listeners would think, all right, that time was because of drugs or alcohol. And that's what the sentence was related to. But it had nothing to do with that. Your time was actually in your recovery. And what I find most most amazing about it and the reason that I want to highlight this story um, is that you didn't use that as an excuse to go out again. You didn't pick up another drink in prison. You didn't pick up another drug in prison. Um, you didn't fuck up your recovery and you still put that first. And I heard some really, really powerful stuff when you were telling that story. And again, one of the million reasons I wanted to get you on here to share your story, because it's just unbelievable um, that someone can, can do that the way you did. Cause a lot of people to just use that as an excuse and said, fuck it, I worked so hard for my recovery. And, you know, this is happening to me. So, you know, what what do I have to lose or blah, blah, blah. And they would have just thrown shit out the window and probably tried to start fresh when they got out. You didn't do that. In fact, you helped people in there. And so I definitely want you to tell your version of the story, you know, as much detail as you want to go into what got you in there. Um, you know, it's it. This is this is your floor. So have at it. I'm just that that story is just beyond powerful to me. Yeah, dude, I appreciate it. It's uh you know, it is a it is a crazy story, and it's one that um, I never would have thought would have happened to me at nineteen. I was nineteen years clean and sober. As I'm, you know, I'm heading to federal prison, and you know, after my run across the Sahara, 
uh, I was able to, you know, I think I talked about this already. I was able to get an agent and I was on, you know, NPR and the morning shows. And I did a lot of speaking gigs and like a lot of good things happened. And it was one of the gifts as far as I looked at it of, uh, of recovery, of being clean and sober. And, uh, and it made me a big fish in a small pond, as the old saying goes, you know, I live small town, North Carolina, and the film running this era came out and we, it was big in all the local theaters. And uh, apparently, and I wouldn't learn this till later, but apparently one single IRS agent in the town where I lived went to see the film and, and he wasn't nearly as impressed by me as other people were. So he opened an investigation after seeing the film. That was his only reason. And wow. to this day, and I'll never know the difference, but to this day, you know, I wonder if I just stole this parking space or, you know, whatever at the grocery store. But, uh, you know, he was looking into my taxes and that came up empty because I pay my taxes, I always have. And there's a memo that says, you know, very clearly that, you know, Mr. Engel pays his taxes. But instead of giving up, then he continued to dig and he actually spent millions of dollars investigating me and ultimately uh a couple of years after the run across the sahara i'm just coming home one day after being out running errands and i come back to my condo and uh, i get out of my car and six armed federal agents uh come running out of a coffee shop in my building and they handcuff me and throw me in the back of a police car and i have no idea what's going on no clue and i spend the night in jail and you know, not knowing why I was even there. And the next day I'm handed a big giant stack of papers and it's a federal indictment. And I'm literally being indicted on 15 federal charges uh, stemming from a mortgage that I had back in 2005. And so I'm just gonna cut to the chase because frankly, this isn't the important part. Uh, but I, I became the only person in the United States to be charged with overstating my income on a home loan application from 2005. And uh, it, it was at a time in 2010, if you remember, uh, as you reminded me yesterday, you're, you're not quite as young as you look. So, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, that was when, you know, the mortgage crisis was really in full swing and, you know, and the government was looking for people to blame. And, you know, I sort of became, it's interesting, like the fame, if you will, that I got from the Sahara actually turned me into a target and I didn't have any money. So, you know, I didn't have enough money to defend myself. Minimum amount of money to defend yourself against federal charges is 300 grand to begin. Like you can't find you can't hire an attorney for less than that for those kind of charges. So I had a public defender and I ended up going to trial and, you know, nobody goes to trial against the feds because you're going to lose. <laughs> you know, we live in a country where basically uh, the U S uh, convicts its own citizens at about a 99% rate. And from what I've heard, than the feds won't even take a case unless they feel like it's pretty much a slam dunk. Dude, man, 100%. You're so smart to say that because they, they not only is the game fixed because all the judges are former federal prosecutors. And it's like, again, China, Russia, 
there's no tribe or monarchy or dictatorship even that convicts its own people at the same rate the United States does. And that's why we have more people incarcerated per capita than any country on the planet. But we like to hold ourselves up as, of course, a place for human rights. Another, that's another story for another day. But I fight this because I didn't do it. You know, I knew I didn't do it. And everybody always says that. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I knew the facts of the case. So I go to trial and I am actually found not guilty of providing false information on a loan application because I didn't. I'm found guilty of mail fraud. (laughs) That's why I went to prison. And it's because I bought a house in 2005 and I signed the paperwork. Well, it's almost like a Hollywood film when I'm telling you this. So my mortgage broker, a guy I'd never met before in my life, just a voice on the phone, he forged the loan application for my loan. And he admitted it at trial. He literally, not only did he fill it out, but he signed my name to it. <laughs> it was a complete forgery. And he was already going to prison for it. So he's like turning people in like crazy, pointing the finger at other people so that he can get a reduced sentence, right? It really is like a, like a Hollywood movie. But anyway, even though we proved that, the fact is I did sign a closing package. You know, when you buy a house, you sign a big giant or a car, a big giant stack of papers. We sign where the red sticky notes are and I'm not making excuses, but that's what I did. And I took that, I was in California at the time. I took that packet and I put it in the mail and it contained that false loan application that he admitted putting in there. But once I signed it, it became, you know, my my property, basically. And so I was sentenced to a 21 month sentence in federal prison in Beckley, West Virginia. And it was on I was on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, like unbeknownst to me. It was very funny scene. Uh, I was on, you know, every you know, we also live in a country. We all kind of know this. Uh, I don't want to get sidetracked, but, you know, the day I was arrested, forget about being convicted. The day I was arrested, the next day, it didn't matter if it was a newspaper or a running blog or a podcaster or whomever, like I became like guilty, right? So we don't live in a country where you're innocent until found guilty. If, if it's in the paper or if it's on the internet, you're guilty. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, and, and again, correct me if I'm wrong on this part, um, but I remember... Uh, when you talk to Scott about this story, um, Scott being the host of 10 Junk Miles for our yeah. listeners, um, when when he actually chimed in on that part, he actually said that because he's a lawyer, he he's in a practice and they were almost making a living um, or he was taking a lot of cases defending people doing exactly what you were being charged with. Um, so, again, I want you to correct me if I'm misstating any of this. Um, but he said that you didn't do anything that thousands and thousands of Americans didn't do. Um, like you said, you were just you were just kind of being the one to being set an example of at the time. Um, and, and it was no different than, you know, what I might have done. But like you said, you were a big fish or a, a small fish in a big pond. Um, and, you know, you had the movie out. So it was a name that they could tie to because. Who wants to come after Miguel Reyes for doing that same exact thing when nobody <laughs> knows him? Um, this guy might be able to get some clout for taking down Charlie Angle. So maybe you took the parking spot. Maybe yeah. you wanted a promotion. Um, we won't go down that rabbit hole because we don't want to, you know, we don't we don't want to be the people attacking people the, the same way that they attack people. 
because um, I, I like to think that you and I are better than that. We're above that. And that's part of the programs that we work. Um, but it's just extremely unfortunate um, that you had to be that person. And again, I'm going to use air quotes here, but you had to be that person that they were setting an example of. Um, and it's just it's unbelievably unfortunate. And it's it to me, it's it's quite frankly bullshit and it sucks. Um, but and again, I want you to get back into so. How, how much time did you actually do? Because again, I also remember you talking about, um, you know, helping people in there. And I don't know if that was whether that was just finding meetings in there, leading meetings, uh, part of a program. Yeah, there's no meetings, man. There's no, no meetings in the federal system. They're not allowed. So there's no wow. AA, there's no NA. So we have a federal prison system that about 80% of the men and women for that matter are in prison for something drug related but you cannot have aa na there's nothing like that when you hear about meetings going into jails and institutions that's state prisons if they allow it but that's on an individual basis and like county jails and whatever else in the federal system despite the fact that you've got hundreds of thousands of of people in prison for drugs. There's no drug treatment, there's no drug education, and there's not even AA. So that said, I did, I mean, here's what happened. So Valentine's Day, 2011, my kids, my two teenage boys actually dropped me off, you know, at the front gates of Beckley Federal Correctional Institute. And uh, again, in the, in, in the federal system, this isn't like state where like you get a 10 year sentence and you only do two years, you know, in the federal system, you do all of your time, except you get if you basically you get an advance of 15% for good behavior. So basically, a 21 month sentence meant I was going to do 18 months, so a year and a half. And, you know, I went in there, man, with, um, I was scared, you know, and I was sad, and I was really pissed off. <laughs> because of what had been done to me. And, you know, my story was on the front page of the New York Times. And, you know, there was a lot of attention. And, and all those articles were supportive. They were all saying, this is the biggest bunch of bullshit you've ever seen. You know, that, the, and, and just to be clear, if even if I had done what I was accused of, which I didn't, but there were 15, as you, as you kind of said, there were 15 million, not thousands of people. Okay. 15 million people during that time who basically had, you know, bad loans. And they were almost all in the actual real estate industry. So you heard about guys, you know, buying 15 or 20 or 30 rental houses during a period of time. Well, almost nobody has that kind of income. Like you couldn't fill out a loan application, honestly, and say that you've got enough income to pay 30 mortgages. Right. So so there were a lot of people lying. But, you know, I was angry because I felt like I'd been mistreated. But here's really the important part of this whole part of the conversation. So the first day I got there, uh, you know, the first guy that I really meet and have a conversation with is the cellmate uh, in the next cell uh, close to me. And he's a um, 62 year old black man uh, who got a six uh, 25 year sentence. He'd already been in prison for 23 years at that point, but he got a 25-year sentence for one gram of crack cocaine. Holy shit. And so he had had two shoplifting charges previously, and he got caught with one gram, and he got, you know, 25 years. And so for perspective, 
<laughs> I'm feeling sorry for myself, right? Because of what's been done to me. But stuff like that gets done to people every single day. And in particular, people that look like that guy, you know, a black guy, a person of color, like he has no, he didn't even have a, you know, if he had a, a public uh, defender, you know, that guy could care less whether he went to prison. And, you know, so he lost his entire life. So here's what I decided to do. Uh, I, you know, I realized that being angry and uh, all of that fair or unfair didn't matter anymore. Like that didn't matter. And I'll tell you something strange, Migs. I was the, I was the perfect person to go to prison. <laughs> and I know it sounds like a funny thing to say, but I've been on, I've, I've been an addict on the street for 10 years. I'd run hundreds of hard running races. I knew how to get through hard stuff. And, you know, really, I was very prepared under that circumstance, you know, to go in there. I knew how to take care of myself. And I, I knew that I actually knew that I was going to be fine. So what I did is I started to run and I ran every single day. And when we were in lockdown, which was all, half the time, I ran sometimes for six hours in place in my cell, just standing oh, in place and just running there. And people thought I was nuts. But, you know, I was the middle-aged white guy that people thought was crazy, which actually isn't a bad thing in no. federal prison. <laughs> and so, you know, and so people kind of left me alone. But here's the important part. I never asked a single person to run with me, ever. But what happened is that old rule of attraction rather than promotion. I was just living my life. I was doing my thing. And people made fun of me for a while. Oh, man, you always run. What are you running from? And slowly, though, guys started to come up to me and say, hey, you know, can I run with you or can you teach me how to run? You know, and part of it is because they saw my life being better than theirs in there. Right. Just like on the outside, you know, when you see so you, if you see somebody who's got something you want, you know, you want to try to do what they're doing so that you can have some of that. And so by the when I got there to prison, I had maybe three guys. There were maybe three guys running on a regular basis. By the time I left a year and a half later, I had 50 guys in my running group and they we ran every single day. I had 25 of these guys doing yoga with me on the softball field every three days a week. And like it was crazy, you know, and, pe and people were laughing and making fun at first. And then everybody was like all into it and. You know, I had I had like 10 guys that lost more than 100 pounds, you know, and wow. and, you know, it's just a crazy it was a gift. It was a gift for me to have the opportunity to be in that place. I never would have chosen it for myself. Of course, nobody would. You know, it, it really messed up my life. The, it messed up the life that I had, but it gave me a whole new and different life. And I I don't mind saying and I know I know you uh know this but i mean i live my i make a joke all the time about the movie eight mile you remember eminem and mm -hmm. eight mile remember that movie so you know remember what happened at the very end of the movie the last battle the rap battle at the end of that movie yeah he came at himself exactly so my attitude is very much in everyday life like you know i just dump my own shit out on the stage or on the podcast or wherever and people are going to think whatever they're going to think. And I'm not saying that I don't care or that I'm immune to be having my feelings hurt because that can happen. But in general, we all worry so much about the stuff that we've done and that we're ashamed of or that, you know, 
we were mistreated or what all that stuff and and yet everybody's got it everybody's got it and so normally what happens is when your stuff sees the light of day it takes all the power away from it right there's very little left to talk about and and in fact most people really don't don't care the only thing we all do man is struggle we all struggle and if you share that struggle with other people, it helps them to realize that whatever the thing is that they're struggling with or they're ashamed of is not that big a deal. So when I left prison, craziest thing, then I'll stop talking. These guys, I had so many guys come up and like hug me and they're crying. This is prison, <laughs> <laughs> right? So this is weird. And like, they're thanking me for what I did for them. And I, I was... Uh, absolutely just i couldn't believe it honestly because i and i told them i said hey well i'm sorry like i didn't do it for you you know i did it because i knew that that was the only way i was going to get through this was to actually be of service to other people you know and so by doing something sometimes it seems selfless when you give yourself to other people you know, you are the one that receives all of the real benefits, you know, and they got something out of it too, of course. But, you know, I was grateful to them for giving me the opportunity to do something that, you know, changed my life forever. And I carry, I carry that place with me all day, every day, you know, and not in a bad way. You know, I, I just think about those times and it gives me gratitude and, and, uh, you know, it's another, I also got a chance to write most of my book while I was in there. So, <laughs> oh, that's that's just unbelievable and and for our listeners um that's that's why i wanted him to tell this story because again i get i get chills the hair and and i i don't think i can go an episode without saying this because every episode every interview i do they're just so powerful i just always hear something that just changes my life changes my life helps keep me sober for the day um and I always get a moment where something happens and the, the hairs on my arm just flat out stand up. I always get goosebumps and chills. And, you know, that's what this part of the interview did, because, you know, in the beginning of that story, and I didn't know that there was an AA or NA in there. So in the beginning of the story, I'm thinking, shit, how does a guy who goes to meetings regularly stay sober while being in there? Um, and then I think you answered it along with a lot of other stuff you talked about. You answered it at the end in one simple sentence, and that was by being of service to others. Um, and that that pretty much summarizes everything that you talked about in there. And it's just it's it's amazing. And it's it's un, unbelievable is just an understatement. I don't even know what the word I would want to say is. It's just it's I love it. That's just such a beautiful story. And that's why I wanted you to share that. And, and thank you for that. Cause that's just, it's, it's nothing short of amazing. Um, and it helps us get into the, the next transition and how I want to pretty much spend the rest of the time that I have with you here. And that's the idea of this podcast is staying fit one day at a time. So we talk about the recovery story. We talk about where you've been through. Um, so we know that you traveled all over the country and all over the world and you did anything you had to do to get your next fix, to get your next drink. You've been through all that. Um, you do 19 years of, of sobriety before you find yourself in prison, in which I know you're running in that time. So I'm going to have you talk on that. Um, and now you're out of prison and you're still running. You're still doing the next right thing. Um, when a lot of people at this point might only have eight, nine, maybe 10 years of sobriety because they would have did something stupid in jail. You didn't. You're rallying up on close to 29 years. And that's I love everything about that. Like I said, 
um, to you yesterday, to our listeners early in this episode. Um, that is that is the most tenure we've had on this on this podcast as far as uh, recovery. Um, and and that's just it's it's amazing. And for our listeners out there, um, if you have more than 29 years of recovery and you have a cool fitness story, then reach out to me because we can get that story. And, and I'm sure I'm sure of all the things that Charlie does as competitive as he is. And, and please tell me if I'm wrong. I'm sure that if someone's listening to this and wants to one up you on that note, because they have more time, I'm sure that's like, like we talked about with catcher, that's the one race you don't want to win. Um, you know, cause if someone has 30 years of sobriety right now, you're hoping that you never catch them. Just like I'm sure catcher hoping she never catches you to get to, uh, you know, staying ahead of her because in recovery, that's the one race we don't want to win. Cause that's the one race we're racing for ourselves. We're at our own pace and it's impossible to go any faster or any slower um, we're just at our own pace. So, you know, if you're out there and you're listening and, and you have more time than that, and you have a cool fitness story, then definitely reach out. Um, and we'd love to get you on. Um, but until then, you know, you're the OG on this podcast. You got the most time <laughs> and I absolutely love that. And that's, that's beautiful. Uh, so, so now next on, um, let's, let's just talk all fitness, everything, um, running, anything else you're doing. I mean, we know you do yoga, I mean, I want you to talk about from the beginning of your sobriety up until now, just, I want you to just lay out there everything you've done, all the epic shit, um, all the amazing stuff, you know, running across the Sahara, uh, which obviously they made a movie about, like, you know, just, I want you to talk about anything and everything fitness related and, you know, just, and, and even if there's some also some cool stories that you've never told out there before or aren't on any other podcast that can be unique for our listeners, just this is your floor to just talk about all the epic shit you've done in your recovery with running and, and anything else fitness related, not just running anything you've done. Just go. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. It, it's been a it's been a fun journey and everything that I talk about when it comes to, you know, to fit, fitness is a side effect of my lifestyle. And it's not the thing that drives me. In other words, fitness for fitness sake isn't really interesting to me. I like to use it to go travel and to go see new places and meet new people. And, and yeah, sure, I like to feel good. I like to look good, look healthy. Um, I am a couple of things for the listeners to know. I am plant-based. Uh, I have been for more than 20 years. So, you know, I haven't eaten meat for a really long time. Um, I tried it initially cause I just wanted to see how it would make me feel. And in a weird way, it's almost a little bit like sobriety. You know, I got to 30 days without meat and I felt fantastic. And I was like, well, why would I, why would I go back? <laughs> you know? And so I kept on with that lifestyle and, and I do, you know, I am, a, I'm married to a, an amazing conservation biologist and she's a scientist and, and, you know, we, we do support a lot of causes around, uh, you know, a health, not just a healthy body, but a healthy planet. So is she also vegan. You know, she is. She she okay. has been for much longer than I have been, even. So um, she's a much better cook than I am too. So that makes it much <laughs> much better. But uh, you know, and so when I, you know, I told you guys in the previous part that I ran thirty, roughly thirty marathons in the first few years of my sobriety, and I didn't really know why. Like I just knew that I needed it. To be honest, I just needed that place to put all that energy, almost like almost like a purge. Uh, then I started understanding that 
running 50 milers, running 100 milers. Uh, I started running hundreds of miles across, you know, deserts and jungles and doing all these crazy things for five straight years. I had this great phase of my life from like 1998 to 2003, where I did every major adventure race in the world. And so like the Eco Challenge, which is, you know, Mark Burnett put on the Eco Challenge. I don't know how many of your listeners know about this, but it was the, you know, it was this amazing adventure television show. Uh, you go, it's team event, you go 10 days without sleep and you, uh, which I knew how to do as a, as a good recovering addict, I knew how to go without sleep. And, uh, you know, you're running, biking, whitewater paddling, navigating, you know, you're doing all of these things, but you're doing it as a team. Uh, and these races were huge and they were really like, I, I always say that I learned how to suffer physically. I want to uh, pause you for a second. I think yeah. I actually seen that. Um, is that the one? Um, and I don't know, maybe there's a bunch of them, but it, it started off, you guys pretty much started in the water. Like that was like the very first thing. Yeah, there's, that was one, but I mean, there were, there were dozens and they all, I remember a team. I remember a team of specifically people in recovery. Is that, am Mm. I thinking of the right one? Did you have a team of all people in recovery? There were, I didn't have one, but there has been. And so you might've even seen recently um on uh prime on amazon yep this is exactly what i see this past year right and so that's so mark burnett is the producer and mark burnett created survivor and apprentice and all these other amazing race that's kind of that's kind of how you know him but previous to that back in the 1990s he created something called the eco challenge and these races are freaking epic i mean they're just they're just amazing but um I also, during that time period, though, I, uh, I was doing triathlon still. And so I qualified for Kona for the Kona Ironman uh, in Hawaii. And so I Which did for that. for our listeners, that's like the race to qualify. Like marathon runners try and make it to Boston. Triathletes try and make it to Kona. Like that exactly. is the race to qualify. And it's very hard, very hard to qualify. So, you know, I was, I was, I was kicking it. And this is about 20 years ago at this point. And uh, I, I was in my late thirties and I just was, you know, I was in the prime of my, my physical, you know, ability, I think. And I love, I just, you know, what I loved about all these sports was like Ironman or a marathon, even I ran Boston a bunch of times is like, when you're standing there at the start line of one of these races, like the guy next to you or a girl on the other side of you, they could be the CEO of a major company or the janitor at the local high school. And you, nobody knows, right? Nobody cares. Like you're all there for this one shared purpose and passion. I mean, it's, it's a lot like recovery, right? I mean, it really doesn't matter why somebody's there. You're there for the same reason. Uh, it doesn't matter where they come from, I mean. And so uh, that's why I continued to do like dozens of marathons every year too. I stopped being a while back, like as competitive with marathons. Um, cause it really beats your body up. I mean, you, you can't, you can't run. Some people can, there's a few out there, but I can't run, you know, 25 fast marathons every year. Um, it just, you know, tears your body up. So, I began to look for events that could take me to a country that where I hadn't been. I raced in Australia and New Zealand and Fiji and Vietnam and Borneo and like literally all over the world. And so the fitness related to it was much more about the overall lifestyle. And this is the, the point I like to make to people. Too often people get caught up in 
always trying to follow someone else's plan, always trying to do the perfect next right thing. And there is no such thing. Like taking action is what matters. And so that's why I never keep a journal. I don't even know what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> like <laughs> I am two months away right now from running Badwater in Death Valley again, you know, which I've done many times. And I actually, this is a good story. I told, I ran Badwater in prison when I was locked up in Beckley. I realized that Badwater was coming up a few months after I actually, you know, started my prison sentence. And I decided that I was going to run 135 miles on the same day as Badwater around that shitty little dirt track in prison. And so, and it's totally against the rules. Like you're not supposed to run more, run more than three miles at a time. And like, I had to like, I had to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Plus, when you're in prison, you're in prison. Like I had to be in my cell five times a day for count time. You know, basically you got to be there and be counted. Like, so I'd be out there running and I'd have to put back on my greens and go back into my cell and get counted. And I had a job too. So I had to go do my job in the rec department. Then I'd, I'd strip back down to my, my running stuff and I'd go run more. And so over the course of two, I ran 85 miles the first day. And I finished off the 135 miles on day two. Uh, and, you know, and I ran Badwater on top of a mountain in, in West Virginia uh, at the same time, because I wanted to, I wanted to feel it. Like I needed to like feel fellowship and, and bonding with all those people that were running through Death Valley at that moment. So, but my point around fitness, and I, I, I want to get this idea across to people, it's just the way I do it. I mean, everybody's got their own thing, but people put too much pressure on themselves a lot of times. You know, you, you have to take action. But for me, every day, I sort of wake up and I take my, I gauge my, how I feel, like literally how I feel. I do actually wear, <laughs> I wear technology <laughs> these days, which helps me get a sense of really how well I slept, how much I've recovered from the previous day or the previous days. And that will then determine what I'm going to do that day to train. Because just because I have a 25 mile run scheduled for tomorrow, if I wake up tomorrow and I feel like shit, I'm totally worn out. It's been a hard week, whatever's going on. It doesn't make any sense to go out there and beat myself up for 25 miles, just because that's what it says on my schedule. You know, and that's the point I try to make to people. It takes a lot of experience to learn how to train instinctively, but it's something anybody can do. So you, you can't listen to the voice that says, eh, I don't feel like doing it today. Like that's the voice you got to ignore. So when on the days I don't feel like going to do the run though, that's when I do yoga. And I do, I just finished not long ago, a breath work uh, workshop virtually. And you can find they're all over the place online, but I highly recommend it changed. It, it, it was phenomenal. It's just deep breath work. And like, I went from, uh, this is the one way that I gauge the success. I went from being able in the first uh, week of doing this four, four week breath work program, I could hold my breath for about 75 seconds. Like after doing these 20 minutes of deep breathing and all this could hold my breath by the time the course was over uh, at the end of the month I could hold my breath for about three and a half minutes and it was amazing just how how much it changed my lung capacity my as an athlete you know we want 
to be able to kind of control our breathing and to, and to understand what that feels like to be anaerobic. And so uh, the, the point I guess I'm making more than anything else is try everything. What do you got to lose? Especially if you're a person in recovery, holy shit, look what we did to our bodies for yes. years. You know, we just kicked yes. our own asses all the time. So maybe you try something that you like, eh, I don't really, I don't dig yoga or I don't want to do meditation. I don't know. But if you don't try it, don't look at it from the outside and make a judgment and say, I'm not doing that. You know, give it a try. But And by give it a try, I mean like for a month, not like once, because that's not, that's not a true test. And I do focus on two other extremely important things that have made me, I think, very successful. And people forget it all the time. And you, when I tell you, you're going to go, well, duh, sleep and hydration. All right. We almost all go through our lives chronically dehydrated and chronically like unrested. And some of this has come with age for me because I was that guy who used to say, I only need five hours of sleep every night, you know, guilty. because I'm hundred yeah, percent guilty right now. Right. I'm just stronger than everybody else. Yeah. You know, and, and it's like, okay. And it doesn't mean that you, you, me, it doesn't mean we can't function at a very high level, but you cannot function at your highest level. It would be like saying you're unique as an addict. Oh, yeah, right. We're all addicts, but I'm, I'm different than the rest of you. Like, we're not different. We're just human beings. Our bodies need rest and we need hydration. Like, if you're not peeing clear 10 times a day, basically, you know, you're not drinking enough, especially if you're exercising. I mean, so those two simple things, I spent years, man, working my ass off, like running like crazy and doing all these miles. And I'm in the gym every day and I'm doing all this and then I'm not sleeping enough. And I'm not drinking enough. And so my body, it takes so much more work for my body to actually get the results of the hard work, you know, because I'm not giving it the opportunity to rest and recuperate and, you know, and to rehydrate. So, I mean, those are, that's really it, man. That's all I got on that. I mean, I'm it's soaking a, it's a in so thing. much of this right now, like this, cause I'm, I'll, I'll a hundred percent admit, um, um, Although I'm doing a lot better with the hydration part, cheers on that. Um, this mm -hmm. was this. I drank one before we started, and this was full when we started about 30 minutes ago. Um, Perfect. So I'm I'm doing better on the hydration, but I am extremely guilty of of not getting enough sleep and just trying to power through. And I I I don't usually go with the mentality that, uh, yeah, I'm so tough because I didn't sleep. It's more or less like. I kind of go with the mentality that I got to get shit done so I can't sleep because I got to get shit done. And it's not just with fitness. It's, you know, with life, um, with being a father, being a husband. Um, and one example I'll give you is actually uh, Wednesday, Wednesday into Thursday. Uh, I kind of like have this like little overnight gig helping a friend out. Um, so I didn't get home until like three or four in the morning. And I knew Thursday is going to be our anniversary. Um, and I know I got a lot of stuff to do. So I went out for a run at four o'clock in the morning in the pitch black dark, went to the gym, got my thing, um, then went out to breakfast with my wife. Then we do the, the first part of this podcast. And then uh, then I got to go to the barbershop anniversary dinner afterwards. By by last night, you know, I realized that by the time I actually laid down last night at 11 p.m., I had been awake for 32 hours. 
um, yeah. with zeros, with maybe like two 30 minute relaxations in, in that 32 hour period. Um, and then I woke up, I wanted to go for a run. I had, I had a, a run on the menu this morning and I wanted to go ahead and get that done before my wife left for work. So I set the alarm for 4 a.m. And at 4 a.m. I decided, you know, my body just needs a little bit more rest. I had that second where like I popped up and I felt awake and I was like, I can throw on my shoes. And I was like, or I can just relax and go back to sleep for four more hours and just kind of start fresh for the weekend. Um, Cause I work in the restaurant business. So I'm, uh, today's my son's birthday. Got to work tonight, got to work tomorrow. Um, so you're, you're preaching to the choir there. Um, Cause every, I, I, I try and reset, recharge my body every couple of days, but you know, I'm one of those people that, you know, four or five hours and I think I could just go, go, go. But as I get older, I know I need to get better with my sleep schedule and just and get some more time in. But I love that you're saying that. That's absolutely awesome. Well, um, you're a super high energy guy, you know, and, and that's uh, that that's it's awesome. You you are you know, you've got a power in that. And that's part of who you are. And just once in a while, you have to listen. You did the right thing this morning. You know, you don't help yourself by driving yourself into the ground. You don't get more fit by running harder when you're already exhausted. You know, you're, you're way better off giving your body that, that break and then going and doing it when you, you know, I mean, time's always gonna be hard. You got, you got young kids, you got a life with all kinds of things going on and you know, you're doing a good job. Just, just be mindful I appreciate that. and yeah. Now, I'm gonna hit you with some rapid fire stuff here. Okay. Um, as far as uh, you know, you've been literally all over the world um, do you know off the top of your head how many countries you've been in? More 48. than a dozen? 48? 48. Holy shit. You've been in yeah. you've been in more countries than you've been in, enough <laughs> to match all the continental states. Holy shit. Uh, that's unbelievable. I think you might have been in more countries than I've even been in cities, if we don't count driving <laughs> through them. That's unbelievable. Um, so with that being said, uh, uh the rapid fire, here we go your favorite country you've ever been in new zealand okay favorite country you've ever ran in if that's not the same country it's not it's ecuador okay uh fastest marathon time 252 where was change. that so that was twin cities in minnesota okay a long time ago was that the first time you bq'd uh no um i did it several times uh before that was it the first time? Actually, that might have been the first time, though. I do okay. I do Boston about every five years. Okay. I don't know if I could do it now, though, because good <laughs> God, you got it now. You got to run like seven or eight minutes under now, qualifying time. As a marathoner, um, I'm I'm gonna name all of the top marathons that for someone who mm. doesn't get a chance to travel the world, um, these are just the the top marathons that come to mind as someone who is pretty much sheltered in Northeast Pennsylvania. And you tell me if you've not ran any of these uh okay. boston new york did it chicago did it. done it la done it uh the the one in florida where you run across like you're running on the like over the bridges on the water i'm drawing a blank on i think it might be yeah i never did that one so i, I, I know what you're talking about but i've not um, done and that and then the two international that popped to my mind the great wall not done that one and london Done London, yeah. All right, so you need to do the one I can't even really remember in Florida. It might not even be that yeah, big what, of a marathon. It might just be because I know people that live in Florida that have had a chance to do it. Um, 
but you got to do the great wall. It sounds like that's the only like major, major marathon that our listeners probably a ton of them have heard of that you haven't done. Uh, okay. I do have to tell you though. <laughs> so back in 2003, I ran a race called the Gobi March and the Gobi March took place in the Gobi desert in China. And it was 250 miles. Uh, and about half of it was along, so 125 miles of it was along the most ancient section of the Great Wall of China, the first section that was ever built. And so it was about 2,500 years old. And so while I did not do the Great Wall Marathon, I did run across 125 miles of the Gobi Desert right next to <laughs> the oldest section of the Great Wall. People always think of the Great Wall as that thing that we see that you can run up on top of, That's but there's a lot of, there's a lot of really much older parts of the great wall that are crumbling and that you can't actually run on them anymore, but it's such a, what an amazing, uh, you know, piece of architecture. Wow. So that's, and again, you were right there. Um, you know, in, in, 30 seconds or a minute or less tell me someone in recovery that is also an athlete doesn't have to be a runner it doesn't have to be any specific fitness skill just someone that is in recovery that mm -hmm. is doing great shit out there in in the health and fitness world that that someone that's done the shit that you've done someone that you look up to out there um that's you know one of us well, it's going to be somebody you actually know of very well. And that's my, my good friend, Rich Roll. And okay. uh, he's, uh, I've known Rich for a very long time. And I think Rich is, you know, he's, I admire Rich because he's managed to make a really great living at not only being a runner, but being an advocate for sobriety and for a plant-based lifestyle. And, cool. you know, he's just a good guy. So anybody that can do that, they got my respect. Cool. So I'm also going to say this, especially because you just said his name, um, you know, and, and I mean this in a positive way, by no means am I saying anything negative. Um, I'm still yet to be able to get a response from him um, on any type of social media. I've reached out to him the same way I did you as far as trying to get him on the podcast. Now, I know just like yourself, he's extremely busy, has a million things going on. And that's why I prefaced with I don't mean this in a negative way at all, because I know the guy's probably got a million things going on. He might even have a media team that handles his stuff um, before it gets to him. So if you have the guy's number, if you can shoot him a text message and say, hey, look on Instagram at Stangfit Odat. Um, the, the guy is not just a spammer. Tell him that this is a, a half decent interview. Um, I would love to have him on here. Um, I would love to get his story out there. Um, and again, just like you're about to get to do now, it could be another chance for him to plug his books and all of his outlets and everything that he has going on out there. Um, so if, if you can reach out to him, tell him that I'm not spam. It's not bogus and try and tell him that, that I would love to get him <laughs> on the it. show. Absolutely. I'll do it. If it makes you feel any better, I can text him and it'll take two weeks for him to get back to me also. So he's a, <laughs> he's a, he's a busy guy, but yeah, I, and I, I, I totally you, get I it. I give you my word. I give you I, my word. I'll, I'll give it a shot. So I now totally that get it. This, and, yeah. and again, and, and I, I, you know, I say that too, because I, I, you know, there's a handful of people out there that I've sent messages to. Um, and I'm not saying that anybody in this list is better or worse than anybody. Cause I know it gets to a point where you're doing so many things for so many different organizations, so many charities. Um, 
you know, and you have your own families to feed and you have to support your everything going on, whether it be books or, you know, being on television shows and whatnot. So I get it. Um, but every time I read another inspiring book, every time I hear another amazing story, I reach out to these people and it's really cool when someone can get back. And I understand when they don't. Um, but, you know, I've, I've reached out to yourself. I've reached out to Scotty from 10 Junk Miles. I've reached out to uh, Catcher Corbett. I've reached out to Rich Roll. I've reached out to Epic Bill Bradley. Um, you know, these are the people that, you know, the average guy who maybe isn't a runner, isn't in recovery, they might not consider these people, and I'm using air quotes here, celebrities, but these are people that I personally consider celebrities because of mm -hmm. the stuff that you're doing, the example you're, the examples you're setting, and the way you guys are using your platforms um, to promote recovery and health and fitness the way that you do. So I love it. And it's really cool when even if it's a week, two weeks later, three weeks later, the message gets lost in the sauce, but eventually there's a response and it's like, hey, yeah. Um, and I love it when a guy like yourself, you know, can take the time and say, hey, you know, maybe I got to this Instagram message two weeks late, but here's my email. Let's set up this podcast. We'll do it when we can. Um, and, you know, I, I love that. And, you know, shout out to all of you. And again, because I'm not saying anything negative. I completely get it. Um, you guys are busy and you have a million things going on. And, and I love everything about that. Um, so with that being said, I think this is a perfect transition because I know we got to let you go here in a few minutes. Um, you're going out to celebrate, um, with your son as well. Uh, so before we let you go, I want to give you a chance to plug the shit out of yourself. Um, start from beginning to end, um, your, your Facebook, your Instagram, your Twitter, your books, your movies, pretty much. If you remember in the beginning of this episode, we talked about. Um, Charlie wants to be able to continue doing things in this world to hopefully never have to actually work, work a normal job. We don't want Charlie chasing <laughs> storms anymore. We want him to continue chasing dreams. We want him to continue spreading the message. We want him to be able to have an hour, two days in a row to sit down with, with, with guys like myself. So that way people like you, our listeners can hear this story. Um, you know, because Charlie isn't getting paid for this. So we want him to be able to continue doing all this other stuff in which he is able to put money in his pocket to continue supporting his family. So here's your chance. Plug the shit out of wait, yourself. So our Wait, man. What do you mean? I'm not getting paid for this? The check's going to bounce. And trust me, you don't want to go back to jail for, for cashing a bad check. So trust me. It's, it's only going to set us. No, you know yeah. what? Mine is, mine is really easy. And I appreciate that opportunity. But to tell you the truth, I am... Uh, I'm a one-stop shop, so everything is on my website, and it's just my name. It's charlieengel.com. All my social media links are right there. Uh, my and that's you know, angle e n g l e, not like the Correct. not not like the shape, because um, that's or the grocery that, I feel, stores. I feel like wherever. that's a name that can yeah. easily because I can think of immediately three or four different ways to spell angle. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's just charlieengel.com, and all my social media links are on there. Plus my. You know, my book is called Running Man, and uh, I, interestingly, and I think it's the world we live in, I've actually sold, the book has done extremely well, but I've, I've actually sold way more audio books than I have regular books, and I think it's runners uh, in particular like to buy audio books and have something to listen to while they're Yo, running or maybe in their car. Yeah, same here. That's what I do every day. So now let me ask you this because I, mm. and, and sorry on that same note, cause I reached out to, I asked catcher about this as well. Cause the first time I ever heard her book was on audible. Um, yeah. Now maybe it's audible that she was speaking of specifically, but 
she said that she doesn't make i don't know if she said she doesn't make any money or not the same money but it's it's definitely not as beneficial to her if you're trying to support her it's not as beneficial to her to download and listen on audible it is as it is to just buy her book now is that the same with you or do you have a different audible platform for someone like myself who wants to be able to listen to it on the run but still wants to support you with it you know what her agent just didn't do as good a job as my agent did so okay (laughs) No, so it's all the it's all the same for me, you know, basically, books are funny, you know, when you're when you're a writer, when a publisher buys your book, you know, you you basically, uh, and I don't know if she had a publisher or she self published. So she also talked about on there, she wasn't happy with the way some of the stuff went. Yeah, it's complicated, man. It's not an easy thing. And you have to be a self promoter. But um you know, for me, there's no there's no difference. I'm happy if people download the book or if they buy the book on Amazon or, you know, I got a garage full of hard copies. So I always tell people if they want, you know, they can buy a book for me and I'll sign it and send it to them or I'll send it out for a birthday present to somebody or something. So if I go on Audible right now and download Running Man, you're still like getting that. the love so, and I get to listen to it. You got it. Cool. Absolutely. Uh, and- and also, you can put me on the spot here. I'm going to say it now. Um, you can you can sign me up for uh, a signed copy of of the of the ones you have there. Sweet. Um, I might even get two from you. And and as far as like the staying fit ODAT page that we have on Facebook, um, maybe we can give one away in like a contest. Give it away, or, baby. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I'll send so, you two signed books. You just you just send you email me over your address, and I'll I'll get them out to you tomorrow. Yeah, and I'm gonna download the Audible today because I'm always looking for stuff to listen to on the runs as well. Um, I have like two different. I have like a different podcast for different zones, like one that I listen to while I'm driving because it's more serious. Um, and then I like to do stuff while I'm on the run as well. So I'm I'm gonna get yeah. you in there so I can hear your story um in in detail and i love everything about it um but hey it was so much fun having you on here today did we miss anything else that you want to plug that you want to talk about no dude you got it you got it we got it covered you did great thank you so much for taking the time with us today um and yesterday even though our listeners are hearing this all in one interview um but it was it was a pleasure i really really appreciate you i love everything you're doing your story is even more powerful than the first time i heard it um and you're just a true, true inspiration. You're a hero. You're a celebrity. You're everything, brother. You are embodying everything that running and recovery and fitness is all about. You are the embodiment of the staying fit ODAT nation. Um, and we love everything about it. Uh, you know, if you're on Facebook, I would love to send you an invite um, to join the group um, and you know, just let let people know. And so they can see, you know, what you're doing as well. And that's a great place to just share random shit. Um, even if it's just yeah. a run or whatnot. Um, but thank you so much for I being with it. us today. Um, from staying fit, ODAT, all we ask on your part is that you continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and tell us how you're doing it. Only one way, one day at a time, brother. I love it. I love it, brother. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Staying Fit, ODAT. If you yourself identify as someone in recovery, whether it be from alcoholism, substance abuse, anxiety, depression, or any other type of mental health issue, then please join the group on Facebook at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T, three different words. If you do not identify as someone in recovery, but you like everything we have going on and you want to continue staying in the loop with everything, then please follow us on Instagram at Staying Fit O-D-A-A-T. You can also email us with any questions 
comments, or concerns at stayingfitodaat at gmail.com. Until next time, just know you're loved, continue staying healthy, continue staying fit, and please keep doing this one day at a time.